Well, good evening. If you would, take your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. This evening, we're going to continue our study in the book of Acts. Last week, we looked at Acts chapters 13 and 14, uh, where we really see the first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas striking out in in those particular chapters. But this week, uh, we come to really a pivotal moment in the life of the church, and particularly in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 15 is not, it's not just central in terms of the length of the book. There are 28 chapters in the book of Acts, and so 15 is pretty close to the middle. But it's, it's not only central in terms of where it is in the length of the book, but also really thematically and just the heartbeat of, of what the church is spreading, what the church is saying, we see all of it kind of crystallizes and is potentially derailed here in Acts chapter 15 over a, a theological dispute. And so tonight, as David indicated just a few minutes ago, tonight we're going to look at the issue of legalism in our lives, in the lives of our families, in the, lives, uh, in the life of this church. In a message entitled Legalism, its attraction, its absurdity, and its antidotes. I want you to read with me, if you would, in Acts chapter 15. We're going to read verses 1 all the way over to verse 35. We'll only really unpack verses 1 through 21, but I want to, I want to look, if you would, read with me all the way to verse 35. But some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers. And here's the sum of their message. They said, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the elders, excuse me, to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles, and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up, and they said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the gospel, hear the word of the gospel, and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Verse 12 says, And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it's written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. 
Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in their synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. And this is what it said. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words and settling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they sent them off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we love you and adore you and are grateful tonight for your word. And we are grateful that your word testifies to the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. And so tonight, we pray that by your spirit, you would speak to us. Speak to us as a church. And God, we pray that you would speak to every single heart here this, this evening. We pray that, that you would speak to lost people and that you would, you would turn their hearts to Christ. And we pray that you would speak to your saints tonight. And we pray that you would turn their hearts as well, turn their affections to greater and greater understanding, greater love for and greater appreciation for Christ and all that he has done for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I came to uh, the Church of Brook Hills, it's been about two, been about two years uh, since uh, we arrived here at the Church of Brook Hills. I, was a, I served as a pastor for a, a smaller church in rural northwest Alabama. Uh, it was a good time, learned a lot about pastoral ministry, learned a lot certainly about myself, learned a lot about the people of God. Uh, God taught me all kinds of, uh, of things during my time there. But I will, I will never forget, though, the first time I met with the search committee from that church. Now, search committees in Baptist life are, uh, they're, they're an entity, they're, they're a unique animal in all the world. I mean, they're, they're a really phenomenal body of people, uh, if you've ever been involved with, uh, in, in, in any way, in, in a search committee. But uh, I was living in New Orleans at the time, and so uh, they had asked, uh, as we had been kind of getting closer and closer and had greater and greater contact, they, they wanted to come and to hear me preach. And so they didn't want to drive all the way to New Orleans. 
Obviously, uh, they didn't want to have it at the church uh, where they were at because uh, they wanted to kind of wait on that. And so we arranged for uh, a preaching event uh, at uh, a neutral field. And so uh, I went to uh, a church, another rural church, even a smaller church, and uh, we decided to do it on a Wednesday night. It was the only night that I had available. It was Christmas holidays. A lot of stuff went into it. And so they said, we, you know, we called the pastor of that church, and uh, we got everything set up. And so uh, I went there. Uh, it was a prayer meeting in a Baptist church on a Wednesday night, about 20 people there. And uh, the search committee uh, was about six or seven people, and so uh, they were there as well. And so I preached a message that night, and I chose, I chose as my text on that particular occasion, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, which begins, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. It includes the line that, that Jews seek a sign and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach a crucified Messiah, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those of us who are being saved, to those of us who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the wisdom of God and the power of God. And so I just preached a, kind of a simple message on the cross of Christ, on the gospel. And so I finished preaching, and, and we greeted uh, together the, the people that were exiting the church, those 20 or so members of that particular church. And then we went back to the pastor's office, my wife and uh, myself and the six members of that committee. And uh, I'll never forget, we sat down, and, and we had barely even had introductions. And one of the committee members said, listen, um, I, I really want to ask you something. Like, I have, I have a question that, that, that just arises out of what you preached. He said, and he's a dear brother uh, in the Lord. He said, he said, it's a Wednesday night at a Baptist prayer meeting. Everybody here is a Christian, which, by the way, is an assumption, but we'll just kind of work with it. Uh, he said, everybody here is a Christian. He said, why did you preach on the gospel to Christians? And my answer that night is the same answer that I would give tonight, and that is, I tend daily to forget the gospel. I tend daily to forget the gospel and all the implications of the gospel. And I need to be reminded every single day that stretches out before me, I need to be reminded of the gospel that my standing with God has absolutely nothing to do with my performance for God, but it has everything to do with Jesus' performance for me. His life, His death, His resurrection is my only hope and it is my only basis for a right standing before God. I need to be reminded of the gospel. And I am convinced that this is not a personal, this is not just a personal tendency, this is not, this is not just a modern tendency, this is, not, this is not just a human tendency, this is a particularly Christian tendency. All believers have the tendency to forget the gospel. We see that even in Galatians chapter 3. It takes you may want to, to jot down your notes. Galatians chapter 3 verses 1 through 3. Paul had poured out his life in Galatia. He had preached the gospel. He had established the church there. He had moved on and soon after he gets word from the Galatian church that they have moved on to something else. 
And listen to what Paul says. Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing by faith? Are you so foolish, he says, having, and this is is the line that I want you to hear. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, having begun in Christ, having begun in faith, having begun in grace alone, in the Spirit, are you now then leaving that behind and moving on to other things for your standing before God? Works of the flesh, as he calls them there in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3. Luther said it this way. Luther said the, the law is divine and holy. Listen to that. Luther said the law is divine and holy. The law is right. It is good, Romans 7 says. He said the law is holy and divine. Let the law have its glory even. But yet no law, be it ever so divine and holy, ought to teach me that I am justified and I shall live through it. I grant that it may teach me how I ought to love God and my neighbor, how also I ought to to live in love and soberness and patience, but it will not show me how I am delivered from sin, the devil, death, and hell. He says, here instead I must take counsel of the gospel, not the law. I must take counsel of the gospel. I must hearken to the gospel, which teaches me not what I ought to do, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, hath done for me. That he suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. The gospel wills me to receive this and to believe it. And this is the truth of the gospel, Luther says. And then I love his conclusion. He says, most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know the gospel well, teach it unto others and beat it into their heads continually. So, ever so lovingly and ever so gently and ever so humbly, tonight I would love to beat the gospel into your heads. And in so doing, beat legalism out of your hearts. Tonight, I I pray as we look into Acts chapter 15 that we would see the seriousness of the issue before us. That everything hinges on what we think about the gospel. That our our mission, uh, our worship, our salvation, our confidence, everything hinges upon our certainty and our belief and our trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so what I want to do tonight is I want to kind of walk you through parts of this passage in Acts chapter 15. And you can see it there on your notes. I, I, want, you, I, want, you, I want you to see, I want all of us to see tonight, I want us to see the, first the attraction of legalism, how we are all, how we naturally gravitate. It's part of the fallen condition. Mike Horton says that the, that the native language of the sinner is law. The native language of the sinner is law. We naturally gravitate to that, and we always will. And so in that, to see the attraction of legalism, to see the attraction in, in my life, to see the attraction in, in the way that I'm raising my four children, to see the attraction of legalism in that, and to see the attraction even that, that would attract us as a church toward a legalistic tendency. And then I want us to look at a positive, or really a negative and a positive prescription for how we might deal with that. 
thinking about the absurdity of legalism, it just doesn't work. And then to suggest, as we close tonight, some antidotes for legalism. How do we, how do we positively fight the fight in our lives and the life of this church against this tendency of legalism. Notice, if you would, first with me, the attraction of legalism. We see, really, the essence of their appeal. The essence of the appeal of these brothers is found in verses 1 and verse 5. You might want to mark those verses in your Bible. We see their message in chapter 15, verse 1. Unless you are circumcised... Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, listen to what they say. They flatly deny. He says you can't. They say you can not be saved. Now, obviously, this is not the entirety of their message, and so we don't we don't have everything that they say. That, that they say Luke is simply here giving us a summary, really uh, an abbreviated version of the entirety of their message. That unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. Now, he, he kind of expounds on that or expands it a little bit in verse five. So look down if you would in verse five. Some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, they rose up and they said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And so what we see here is this idea of circumcision uh, is really kind of shorthand for the entire Old Covenant. Certainly it is the the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament, but they were not just wanting circumcision. Verse 5 tells us they were wanting circumcision and for them to keep the whole law. And so circumcision kind of is a shorthand for the entirety of the Old Covenant. And so we see that here, and we also see that actually in Galatians as well, in Galatians 1, 2, and chapter 3. But here's what I want you to see, and, and this is key in this context, particularly in Acts chapter 15. The brothers that come down from Judea that are teaching, unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved, they are not, and note this, they are not explicitly denying Jesus. They are not explicitly denying Jesus. They are not saying it is Jesus, excuse me, it is circumcision instead of Jesus. They are not saying that it is the law of Moses instead of Jesus. They're not saying, forget about the cross, forget about his life, forget about his resurrection. It's all about circumcision. It's all about keeping the law of Moses. They weren't saying those things. They were saying it's Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus keeping the law of Moses. They weren't setting out to deny Christ in and of himself. They were just saying he's not enough. It's Jesus plus something. And what I want us to be reminded of as we, as we see, even in their appeal, what I want to be reminded of is none of us, and I don't believe any of us that are born again by the Spirit of God, ever set out to do this with intent. None of us say, you know what? Today I'm going to read my Bible, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to deny the sufficiency of Christ. Those are my goals today. We don't really set out to do that. We don't, we don't place that as an aim or a goal in our life. But we do see that it happens over and over. It happens in our day. It happens all over the place as legalism creeps in. That tendency chokes out life in, in Christ all among us. And it begs the question, why is that? I mean, why, is, why does legalism hold such an attraction? Why, why, is, why is legalism so alluring in my own life? Simply this, and you see it there in your notes, because legalism is simply rooted in our desire for acceptance before God. Legalism is rooted in our desire for acceptance before God. We want God to like us. 
We want God to like us. We want God to approve of us. And we know that God likes holiness and God likes righteousness and God, he got, God likes all of these things. And so we just kind of connect the dots. So you know what? If, if God likes that, and if I, if I do more of that, then God's going to like me more and God's going to love me more and God's going to approve me more and God's going he, to, he's going to think more. He's going to accept me more if I just do all these things. And every believer here tends toward that. You say, how do you, how do you know that? Well, I think, I think we see it, and you see this in your notes as well. I think this universal tendency is evident. I think it's evident in its appeal, especially among the religious. It's evident in the appeal among the religious. Now, I want to I point you to, what, what I want you to see is, is clearly it's not, it's not the half-hearted that struggle with legalism. You know, it's not, it's not those that are, that are kind of on the periphery, usually. It's those that are committed. Those that are dedicated. Those that are devoted to the things of God. These are the people. And many of us, would, by God's grace, would even say that we count ourselves among them. Devoted, dedicated, committed. It's those people that are most prone to legalism. And I want to show you in three different classes, three different even areas of Scripture. Notice, notice first that the religious leaders in Jesus' day, they struggled with legalism. We see it all the way back in the Gospels. Think about the Pharisees. Now, we have a particular image of the Pharisees, and we, we sometimes think, or almost always, have a negative idea, a negative connotation when we think about the Pharisees. But what I would suggest to you is, is that if you were a if you were a contemporary of Jesus, if you were around during the time of the Pharisees, more than likely you would not have had as much of a negative idea about the Pharisees. They loved the Word of God. They taught the Word of God. They were zealous for holiness and righteousness. I, I would suspect that if you were a parent, you were a mother in Jesus' day, and a Pharisee walked by, you would, have, you would have pointed your son, you would point him to that man, to, to that Pharisee, and said, son, when, when you grow up, I want you to be like that man. They loved the Word of God. Yet Jesus said of them, and this is all in one sermon, by the way, Jesus said that they were hypocrites, fools, blind guides, serpents, a brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs, and sons of hell. Why? why? Why would Jesus reserve such, such vitriolic comments almost for people who love the Word of God, who were zealous for holiness? Why would, why would He reserve those comments? Because they were, in His own day, they were the epitome of legalism. Because they pursued an external righteousness rather than the righteousness that was right before them in Christ and Christ alone. And so he excoriated them. He, he rebuked them in the strongest terms because they were the epitome of legalism. We see that the Pharisees struggled in Jesus' day, but it's not just the Pharisees. We see that the early church struggled with legalism. The early church also struggled with legalism. It'd be good if you got to the Gospels, you turn to Acts, it's over. No more legalism. But what do we see even in our own text? Verse 1, verse 5. Notice verse 5. I want you to see this. You may want to underline it or circle it with the very first part. We're prone to skip to their message, but notice what it says. But some believers. 
These were not outsiders. These were not pagans. These were, these were missionaries. They were coming all the way from Judea down to Antioch to spread the message. These were believers. And we see the same thing in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6, 6, 7, 8. Listen to what Paul says. You'll see this in the coming weeks in your reading. Listen, listen to what Paul says in Galatians 1, 6 to 9. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Paul said it's possible to turn to a different gospel, to turn to Jesus plus something. Even among, not just the religious, even among believers. Jesus plus something, which Paul quickly says is no gospel at all. There's no good news in it. We see that the religious leaders in Jesus' day, they struggled with legalism. The early church, they struggled with legalism. Thankfully, we do not. I mean, we wouldn't. We wouldn't add to the cross of Christ, would we? I mean, we wouldn't deny the sufficiency of Christ and His cross. Brothers and sisters, we may, we may no longer be prone to base our standing upon circumcision, but I assure you, the church today struggles with legalism. The church today struggles with legalism. Think about, think about this, how often... How often we base our standing with God, our acceptance before God, His view of us on things like how much I read my Bible or how much I memorize the Scriptures. Think about how often we base our standing, how we think about how God thinks about us based on how much and how long and what time in the morning I get up to pray, assuming it's the morning, based on how, how frequently I fast or how much I give or how consistent my family worship time is or how many times I witness, how many mission trips I take, how much I participate in small group, what kind of father I am, what kind of husband I am, what kind of mother I am, what kind of wife I am, what kind of son I am, what kind of daughter I am, what kind of brother I am, what kind of sister I am, how zealous I am, how righteous I behave, how holy I am. Now I want to be really clear. I'm not saying that those are bad things in any way whatsoever. I'm not saying, listen, please don't hear like, well, Bart said like we shouldn't read our Bibles, you know. That was what I got tonight. Like, I'm good for the rest of the year. I'm, I'm caught up on Bible plan forever, you know. It's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying don't read your Bible. not saying we shouldn't pray. Pray without ceasing. All that, all right? I'm simply saying what the danger is that Sinclair Ferguson identifies, which is this. That every day, every day we are tempted to smuggle our character into His work of grace. Every day we are tempted to smuggle our character, who we are, and what we have done into His work of grace. And I would suggest to you that we will fight that fight until the day that we die. That we will always battle the little legalist that is lurking within. But what I want to show you is there is hope for that battle. 
That there is a word for that battle. There is even a strategy for that battle that we see in Acts chapter 15. And that's what I want us to spend the remainder of our time together tonight looking at as we look at really two different strategies, as I mentioned earlier in the sermon. One negative, one positive. First, as we look at the absurdity of legalism, and then notice some te- in the text some antidotes to legalism. Let's look first at the absurdity of legalism. In other words, it just doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. Would you look with me, if you would, particularly in, in verses 7 and following. Look, if you would, in chapter, chapter 15, verse 7. We kind of see Peter's, Peter's speech as he, as he begins. It says in verse 6, the apostles and the elders, they were gathered together to consider this matter. And what we have in Acts chapter 15, verses 7, all the way down to verse, even to verse 19, 20 and 21, we have three sustained arguments from the leadership in the early church against legalism. And what all of them say, and they, they all have different elements to it, but all of them are, are simply speaking to this, that the absurdity of legalism is seen, you see it in your notes, the absurdity of legalism is seen in the eternal plan of God. That the absurdity of legalism is seen in the eternal plan of God. And what I mean by that is simply this, that God never, ever intended, not in the Old Testament, not in the Gospels, not in Acts, not in the Epistles, not in Revelation, not in our lives, God never intended for a single person to be saved by the works of their hands. God always and forever intended for salvation to be by faith alone in Christ alone, always. That it is the eternal plan of God that saints in the Old Testament look forward to a Redeemer that we understand as Christ and saints in the New Testament look back to the cross and see their sufficiency, see the grace that we find in through and through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That has always been the plan. And so it doesn't make sense is what I'm saying. It's absurd to say, hey, we got a better plan than God. I know this is the eternal plan of God, but let us set it aside because we have a better plan, a legalistic plan, a way to earn favor before God. Now, don't you see how each of them, how each of them arrived this, at this conclusion? First of all, we see that Peter saw God's eternal plan. He saw God's plan through the Holy Spirit. Now, what do I mean by that? How, how did he see it through the Holy Spirit? Look, at, if you would, at verse 7. Peter stood up and said, Brothers, do you know that in the early days God made a choice among you? That by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. No doubt, Peter here is referring to the event that David walked us through a couple of weeks ago, the, con- the conversion of Cornelius. You remember that Jesus, Acts 1-8, said, You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And so Acts is really the unfolding of that plan. And Acts chapter 10 is a seminal moment in the life of the early church as the gospel finally crosses that last barrier. And the gospel goes even to the ends of the earth in beginning in the life of Cornelius. But it begs the question, how did Peter know? How did Peter know that what he was speaking to Cornelius, salvation in Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, how did did Peter know that that message was not a perversion of the real gospel? How did he know that what he was speaking was indeed the eternal plan of God? He tells us in verse 8, And God, who knows the heart, 
How did, how did he know it? Listen, he bore witness. God bore witness to them, to the Gentiles. How? By giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Peter said, I know it was real. I know that, I know that, this is, that, 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 that the gospel is, is true and that the eternal plan of God is salvation in Christ alone by faith alone because God gave them the Holy Spirit. And it begs the question again as you keep backing it up, backing it up, how, how did Peter know that they had received the Holy Spirit? We won't go back there, but if you look in Acts chapter 10, verse 44 through 46, we know it, and we can say it. We're Baptists, all right? We know it because they spoke in tongues. That's how they knew it. I'm not saying that that's always going to be the case. I'm not, saying that that's, I'm not at all saying that that is what is going on. I'm saying that in that particular instance, God validated the gospel that Peter was preaching he validated, and he validated the giving of the Holy Spirit in response to that gospel by speaking in tongues in the same way that he did in Acts chapter 2. Peter saw it through the Holy Spirit. We also see then, Peter steps aside, and we see that Paul and Barnabas, the same idea, they see it. They see God's plan. How? Among the Gentiles. Just one quick verse that, that, that Paul and Barnabas are given here in verse 12. All of the assembly, they fell silent in response to what Peter said. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done among them through, or excuse me, among the Gentiles. The same idea, really. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. It's the same idea that we see in the life of Peter. Peter realized that this gospel was genuine, salvation in Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. He realized it was true by the speaking of tongues. Well, they realized it by signs and wonders. God did amazing things in their midst to validate the gospel that they were preaching, that this indeed was the eternal plan of God. And then we see it even in the life of James. James sees God's plan how? He sees it not, in, not through the Holy Spirit, not among the Gentiles. James sees it in the Scriptures. Verses 15 through 18, if you want to put verses out beside that. We don't have time tonight uh, to unpack everything that, that James is saying here. But he refers, he refers his listeners back to Amos chapter 9. And the bottom line of, of James' speech is this. James is simply quoting the Old Testament to demonstrate that what, that what Peter saw, what Paul saw, what Barnabas saw was not an innovation. It was not something unexpected. It was not something that was unpredicted. Rather, it was the eternal plan of God revealed in the Old Testament, shown in the New, or realized in the New Testament that God has always intended to save people, not on the basis of what they have done, but on the basis of His Messiah. That is the eternal plan of God. And so it is absurd to think that we can set it aside. But not only is that absurdity seen in the eternal plan of God, not only do we look upward and see how absurd it is, we just look around and we see the absurdity. Notice this in your notes. We see it in the universal failure of man. We see it in the eternal plan of God. What we behold in the Scriptures and then what we see in our experience in the universal failure of man. Look at what Peter says in verses 10 and 11. 10, 10 in particular. This is the conclusion of Peter's message. He says, Now therefore, why? Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers 
nor we have been able to bear. Peter says you don't have to look around very far. Neither we nor our fathers. Two things that Peter says. One, Peter says that no one can achieve conformity to the law. That no one can achieve conformity to the law. Don't you love, or maybe rather don't we hate, the image that Peter uses here? That the law is like a yoke. It's a burden. It's something that weighs us down. It's something that we absolutely cannot bear. But notice the scriptures say that the law is, the law is not bad. So we said the law is good, the, holy is, the law is holy and divine and right. The problem is not the law, the problem is us. No one, no one, I don't care, you pick them out, you think of the most holy person that you know, no one can achieve conformity to the law. Paul says that there is no distinction. Jew and Gentile all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one can achieve conformity to the law, and because that is the case, the second point, follows from it, no one then can avoid guilt from the law. Because no one can achieve conformity to the law, no one can, no one can avoid guilt from the law. Isn't that the irony of legalism? That what it seeks to apprehend, acceptance before God, approval before God, standing before God, the very thing that it seeks to apprehend is the very thing that it denies because it sends us running in all the wrong places. It sends us here and there and here and there and never to Christ. And because of that, the weight of the law just piles up and we, get, we garner sin after sin and burden after burden and the guilt and the anguish and the angst just bottle up inside us and it eventually drives us to despair or it drives us to pride. Oftentimes to both. It just doesn't work. And so, I know this is not a real high hope for, like, this is, this is not a real high goal for a sermon, but please walk away with this understanding. Legalism is dumb. Like, don't tweet that or anything, but just, just kind of walk away with that, with that understanding. It just doesn't work. It's absurd. Because it sets aside the eternal plan of God. And it flies in the face of everything that we know about ourselves and everything that we know about everybody else. Nobody can do it. And so that leads us then to what I think are some positive prescriptions, some positive avenues, tools to deal with legalism in our own life, the life of this church. So I want you to notice just three, three simple antidotes that I think that we see suggested in, in the text tonight. First of all, the antidotes are lit to legalism are found in gospel conviction. The antidotes to legalism are found in gospel conviction. You say, what do you mean by gospel conviction? Look at me, if you would, in verses 19 through 21. This is the upshot. This is what James, the conclusion that James arrives at, and then certainly the conclusion that the elders and the apostles arrive at along with him. He says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. 
quite a list. Verse 21, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in their synagogues. It seems, does it not, when you read that list, it seems as if James gets to the very end and he gives it up. Like he seems like he goes right up to the free grace and free mercy, and then he just kind of backs up and says, well, but it'd be good if you did X, Y, and Z. Is James really, is he just really one of the party of the Pharisees? Is he just adding to the law like the rest, adding to the cross like the rest of them? Well, I don't think that's the case at all. In fact, I think what you see, when you kind of look at this particular grouping, if you look at them again, they're to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, what's been strangled, and from blood. This cluster of things to avoid is most scholars believe, associated with Jewish customs and Jewish traditions, Jewish scruples about ways they ought to live, particularly as in, in, in the environment of a pagan world. And so what James is saying is, listen, Jews, they, they just have a natural aversion. As they've read the Old Testament over and over, they don't want to be involved in temple rites. They don't want to be involved in temple festivals. They don't even want to be near those things. And so out of love toward your brother and sister in Christ, your Jewish brother and your Jewish sister in Christ, out of love for them, just abstain from those things. In other words, what, what he is saying is that we are to be flexible in matters of indifference. That we are to be flexible in matters of indifference. In other words, we don't, we don't need to be inflexible. We don't need to be narrow-minded about everything. We don't need to have the strongest possible opinion about every single issue in, that, that is raised in the Bible and that is raised in contemporary culture. I mean, there are some things across our body that we're just going to disagree about. You know, there, there are certain ways of life. There are certain ways that we think about uh, our homes and all kinds of things that we're just going to have a little bit of, of, of a different opinion about things. And the truth is, that's okay. It's okay to have a difference of opinion about matters that are not of utmost importance. We are to be flexible on what I would call matters of indifference, but notice this, we are to be inflexible in matters of the gospel. We are to be inflexible in matters of the gospel. No, everything does not, everything does not ascend to that level. Everything is not of the highest priority, but the gospel is. Paul said in Galatians 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 8, he said, but even if an angel, listen, said a heavenly being, if he said, if a heavenly being comes and they should preach to you a gospel contrary to, one, to the one that I have preached to you, let him, he says, be accursed. The word accursed there is the word anathema. It means to cut someone off. To put it into our, our everyday English, Paul is saying, if somebody comes to you, an angel from heaven, don't care who it is. He says, if someone comes to you and they preach to you a different gospel than the one that I have delivered to you, which is faith alone, in Christ alone, by the grace of God alone. They come to you and they preach a different gospel, let him or her go to hell. He said, that's extreme. 
That's serious. And I would say, yes, it is extreme, and yes, it is serious, but that is how extreme the gospel is, and that is how serious the gospel is. And so I would ask you, where is the gospel in your life? Where is the gospel in your convictions? Are you more concerned about secondary matters, about who is doing this and who is not doing this, and how they don't line up with everything that you believe and everything that you think and everything that you practice, or the same for me? Are we more concerned about those secondary matters and less concerned about the primary matter of the gospel? We must have gospel convictions, and notice also we must have gospel clarity. We must have gospel clarity. It's not enough to be convinced about the gospel. We must be clear about the gospel. And that's what we see in the context of this passage. Look, if you would, in verse 11. I I would suggest that verse 11 is, it's the the end of Peter's speech, but I would also say that it is is the heart of the passage. It's the heart of the passage, the heart of the message. Look at what he says in verse 11. But we believe. In other words, contrary to all these other things. No, no, no. We believe this. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. He gives us two things. One, we are saved by grace alone. Peter says two things. We are saved by grace alone. Luther said this, the only contribution that we make to our salvation is the sin that God so graciously forgives. The only thing that we bring to the table Not our past accomplishments, not our present holiness, not our future righteousness. The only thing that we bring to the table is, the only thing that we bring to the table is nothing, our sin, nothing but our sin. He brings it all. It's by grace, that's why Paul would say, for it is by grace you've been saved, and that, that not of yourselves. The faith, the grace, everything is the gift of God so that no man should boast. It's all of grace. Peter says that we are saved by grace alone, and he says that we are saved by Christ alone. That we are saved by grace alone, we are saved in Christ alone. That because of his death and resurrection, he is our hope, he is our rock, he is our confidence, he is our power, he is our wisdom, he is our justification, he is our righteousness, he is our sanctification, he is our redemption, he is our life, and he is our boast. He is all that we have. We are saved by grace alone in Christ alone. And I would ask you again, are you, are you fluent? Are you fluent in the gospel? Are you clear? Are you unambiguous that we are sinners and that there is nothing that we bring to the table apart from our sin and that Jesus Christ is the only hope of salvation for me, for you, and for the entire world. Are we clear on that matter? We need gospel conviction, affirming what the Bible affirms, denying what the Bible denies in terms of the gospel. We need gospel clarity, and last, we need to think through gospel consequences. We need to think through gospel consequences. I'm convinced that one of the best ways that we can fight in our own lives and the lives of our children, the lives of this church, the life of this church, one of the best ways that we can fight against that is to remember what is at stake in this matter. In other words, to think 
critically, to think seriously about what is at what is at stake in this matter of justification, righteousness by faith alone in Christ alone? And I want to suggest a number to you that I think we see kind of flowing out of this text, really kind of looking at taking a step back. What do we see? Some of the consequences are, notice first, we must remember that legalism threatens the mission. Legalism threatens the mission that God has entrusted to us. If we, if we don't have this message, salvation by Christ alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. If we don't have that message, I would ask you, brothers and sisters, what do we have? I mean, what do we have to offer a world that is headed to hell? Our, our music, our movies, our conversation, what do we have? We don't have anything. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew and the Gentile, that is our power. That is our message. And if we lose that power, we lose that message, we lose the mission. And so let us hearken to the gospel. We give in to legalism. We give away the mission. Number two, notice that we must remember that legalism obscures God's glory. That legalism obscures God's glory. Verse 14 James says, brothers, listen to me, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to do what? To take from them a people for his name. God intends to be glorified in the salvation of his people through the blood of his son. And any time we give in to legalism, any time that we suggest that we can do anything to add to our justification, we simultaneously rob God of the glory that is due his name. And I know that's not our heart. And that's not the heart of any regenerate believer. And so, in light of that, away with legalism and up with Christ. Threatens the mission. It obscures the glory of God. Notice number three. Remember that legalism undermines our salvation. It undermines our salvation. We see this throughout the entire passage. But one writer has said, legalism is useless against the devil. How does it undermine? How does it, as I said earlier, how, how does it send us in the wrong direction? How does it move us away from Christ and not to Christ? Simply in this way, legalism is useless against the devil. No law ever defeated him, robbed him of his strength. No law plundered his domain. No law released his captive, captives. No law broke his back. Law never cast him out, never rebuked him, never bound the strong man. It took, the son, it took God the Son, the cross, and an empty grave to do those things. We do not want to undermine the salvation that Christ has purchased by his own blood. By suggesting there's anything whatsoever that we do to add to that. And last, we must remember that legalism destroys our confidence. That legalism destroys our confidence. I want you to notice, just a, it's, a, it's just one little line that's tucked away in verses 30 and 31, particularly the end of verse 31. It's the effect of the letter upon the congregation. They sent them off, and they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And I want you to notice what they say, what Luke tells us. And when they had read it, which had said, look, we're not laying any burden upon you. Okay? No burden upon you. It's Christ alone. When they read that letter, notice what it says. Luke tells us they rejoiced because of its encouragement. 
They rejoiced because of its encouragement. The true gospel, the true gospel provides hope and encouragement and confidence before God. In 1510, Martin Luther took a trip to Rome. Now, many of you know that that is prior to Luther's conversion. The the Reformation didn't occur until 1517, seven years after this trip to Rome that Luther took. But Luther was, at the time, a monk. He was was a teacher of the law, the teacher of the Word. And, And Luther was miserable. I mean, he was, he was driven to despair. He beat himself. He was guilty. He was in anguish. He was, con- he was driving them crazy at the monastery, going back and forth, confessing his sins. He would go and confess his sins and then walk away and run back and confess them, and confess them all over again. And so they got so tired of him and so sick of him, they said, like, just go to Rome. Go, go. And so they sent him to Rome in hopes that that would somehow kind of alleviate his angst and somehow bring him a new, a new, a fresher understanding of his faith and, and relieve the guilt and the burden that he daily dealt with. And one of the reasons they sent him to Rome was because in Rome there were all kinds of holy relics to which a person could come and they could pray and they could attach themselves to those and they could see them and appreciate them and thank God for them and all these kind of things. And in so doing, they could kind of knock years off of purgatory. And so Luther, desiring to, to kind of knock some years off because he knew that one day his, his bad works would outweigh his good works and he would have to spend, you know, 500 years and, you know, kind of the halfway house of purgatory. Uh, he knew that he would, he, would, he would love to kind of knock some of those years off his sentence before God. And so one particular relic that uh, was famous in Rome and still is even to this day was something called the Scala Sancta. You see a picture of it there up, up on the screen. Rome, the church, the church taught that the Scala Sancta were the very steps upon which Jesus walked up to meet with Pilate in Jerusalem. And so they had transported all of these steps into Jerusalem, or excuse me, back to Rome. And now they were holy steps. And it was taught that if a person would simply go up these steps and pray upon the steps, they could knock years off of purgatory. In fact, there was even a... a, a specific number assigned to each prayer. And so every time that you prayed on a step, you could take nine years off of your time in purgatory. And there were 28 steps. And so for those keeping score at home, that's 252 years that that you can knock off of purgatory by praying upon these steps. And so Luther, being the devout monk that he was, and the particularly burdened and guilty monk that he was, said, hey, I'll do that. And so, and so he got down, first step, dropped to his knees, and he prayed the Lord's Prayer. Got up, got to the next step, dropped to his knees, prayed the Lord's Prayer. And step after step after step, he prayed the Lord's Prayer until finally he got to the top. He knelt down one last time, 
Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Kingdom come. Somebody didn't say it in English. Prayed the Lord's Prayer one last time. Got up. And Luther records this later in his writings. In classic Luther fashion. Got up from his knees. Looked down and said, Who knows if it's true? Brothers and sisters, the gospel speaks a better word to us than that. The gospel speaks a word to us that says that there is therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. The gospel speaks a word to us that says that we have access to God through faith because of the Lord Jesus. The gospel speaks a better word to us that says that if God is for us, brothers and sisters, who can be against us? The gospel speaks a better word to us that says that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The gospel speaks a better word to us. It says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The gospel speaks a better word to us that says, no one shall. For Christ Jesus has died, yea, Christ Jesus has raised. And he, and he is at the right hand of God and he intercedes for you and for me. The gospel speaks a better word. And if that is the case, brothers and sisters, for the sake of the mission... For the sake of the glory of God. For the sake of the salvation in Christ that we possess by faith. And for the sake of our confidence. For the good of our souls. Brothers and sisters, let us make much. Both this evening and for all of eternity. Of the gospel of free grace and free mercy. Found only in Jesus.